pleasure to be with you all again. And thank you to Pastor David or Minister Dave or Mr. Vance for your kind invitation to be with you and open the word of God to you. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 78 that we ought to teach our children that we should not forget to recount to them the great things that God has done. Psalm 78, for we will not hide from them, from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glory of Perhaps the greatest deed since the outpouring of the Spirit of Christ on Pentecost is the Reformation of the Church. And so this morning we will consider together God's Holy Word from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Galatians chapter 2. We'll read the whole chapter Our text this morning will be verses 15 and 16. The word of the living God. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, Paul says, with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Caiaphas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they, to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Caiaphas came to Antioch, I, that's the apostle Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
and the rest of the Jews acting hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Caiaphas before them all, if you Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers of the field, they all perish. But the word of our God, it endures forever. And this is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Let us pray. O blessed God, we praise you for your word. We praise you for how you have instructed us in the great truths of the gospel. And we pray this morning that as you, by your Spirit, show us the blessings that we enjoy in Christ through faith in him, that we would be more excited with the thought and the truth that we are justified by faith in your Son. Oh God, give us the understanding, anoint us afresh by your Spirit, And help us, Lord, that we might not hide these glorious truths from our children, from those not yet born, but that we might declare them so that they might rejoice in Christ, their Savior, their righteousness. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Just over 500 years ago, at the end of this month, in the year 1517, an Augustinian monk posted to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, 95 theses, or we might say complaints, concerning the teachings and the practices of the church. I suppose if Martin Luther had lived in our day, he might have posted these theses on X or Facebook. But back then, the church was the way of making something public, making a public statement. And it was through this act that Luther unknowingly would revolutionize Europe, both the church and society, and bring about through the power of the Holy Spirit what was and has been called the start of the great reformation of the church. Now, at the heart of the Reformation was a discovery of that answer to the age-old question, how can a person be made right with God? You remember Job had that question, the psalmist had that question, the apostle Paul had that question. How How can the high and holy one, the Lord God Almighty who dwells in the highest of heavens, the one who is, who is of pure eyes to, than to behold iniquity, how can sinners enjoy fellowship with him? Well, the answer to this question turned the world upside down. 
And we are the beneficiaries of it by God's continued grace and providence. And it was this question that Luther struggled with for so long. Although an impeccable monk, it's wonderful to read his biography, he was troubled in conscience because he was painfully aware of his own unrighteousness that before the altogether righteous and holy God, he stood guilty. As a monk, Luther was above reproach. And he, had, he understood himself to be a wretched sinner in every way. Only deserving God's wrath, his judgment. And despite all attempts... And many attempts and continued attempts of living a righteous life, it didn't seem to matter. His conscience continued to betray him. He had no peace with God. He was a man in agony, continually plagued with a sense of his own guilt, of all his sin before the holy God of the scriptures. And one day that all changed by the grace of God and through the study of the scriptures and the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, he made a great discovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And this great doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which for centuries had been obscured under the fog of superstition and, and ignobility, now stood at the heart of the Great Reformation. It was, in essence, a rediscovery of the gospel, the good news of God for sinners. And it's what the Apostle Paul himself had discovered by the grace of God many years before Luther he was so convinced of this truth that he opens up the book of Galatians, as we have just read part of, in a rather testy denunciation against all those who would pervert the gospel, the clarity of the gospel of free grace, the gospel that he had preached. And in no uncertain terms, he tells us in Galatians 1 verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It's that serious. It's that serious. There is no salvation, no salvation, if we do not understand the gospel. And so understanding the gospel and getting it right it's not a peripheral matter. Paul says, if we don't get this right, there is no salvation. It's a matter of life or death, and therefore deserves our full attention and our constant attention. And we need to remind ourselves of this truth continually. Paul understood this. He had taught the Galatians, after all, on his first missionary trip to their city when he planted this church. And Paul says that they received this gospel of God's rich grace to them in Christ with great joy, with sincere joy. 
But after he left, other teachers crept in and distorted the gospel. And Paul says they were so effective at distorting the gospel of free grace that the Galatian church embraced the false teaching. So influential were these false teachers that even the apostle Peter, chief among the apostles, caved in out of fear for these false teachers, the apostle Peter. And he withdrew his fellowship with the Gentile Christians. And as we just read, Paul saw that in Peter. He witnessed that in the apostle Peter that he was not living in step with the Spirit, with the truth of the gospel of free grace. And thus he publicly rebuked him. Because he saw that his behavior was an attack on the truth of the gospel itself. That's how serious it is. So you see right here in this step how doctrine and living go hand in hand. We live out of what we know by God's grace. And Paul, as he uses this language, he was out of step with the true gospel. The true gospel that was in God, in Jesus Christ. God had broken down the wall of separation between the Jew and the Gentile, Paul says. And he receives all sinners based now on their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying to the church, who is Peter to deny fellowship with those whom God now fellowships with? It's rather profound, isn't it? But you see then the great sin. And if we deny the gospel, the ramifications of it. So it's in this context then that Paul again speaks of this wonderful teaching of justification by faith alone. In verse 15 and 16. And it's here then we have this clear definition of the gospel of God's justifying grace to us in his son. A teaching that was rediscovered at the Reformation. So let me read these verses again. We ourselves, Paul says, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Now you might have noticed, as I just read these verses again, that three times the Apostle Paul speaks about being justified. Actually, there are a lot of duplication in this very verse. So let's define that term. Justification is a legal term. It's the language of the courtroom that expresses freedom from guilt and condemnation. It's exactly the opposite of condemnation, being condemned. To condemn someone is to declare that that person is guilty. To justify someone is to declare that that person is innocent of all charges. 
the person is acquitted. Now the key to understanding though this term justification is to recognize that it's a declaration. A declaration. So for instance, when a judge declares a person guilty of a crime, it's not the judge that has made the person guilty. No, he has considered all the evidence, and considering the evidence, then the judge declares that person guilty. Similarly with justification. When a judge justifies a person, he does not make that person innocent or righteous or without fault. No, he simply declares as judge that that person is not guilty of the accusation against him and therefore is acquitted. And so justification is a declaration by God, the judge of all the earth, to sinners that they are not guilty and therefore will not be condemned. Now, of course, this raises obvious questions. How on earth is this possible? As Pastor David said in his introduction this morning, how is this possible? Understand myself, I know myself well enough to be a person who is guilty of sin, many sins, and that I deserve condemnation, not justification. There's so many things in my life that I know I should do and don't do. There are things that I shouldn't do and do do. And with the psalmist, I can say and you can say that if the Lord should count iniquity, who could stand? Who could stand? If he would deal with me according to my own sin, I deserve only death, condemnation. I'd be guilty, declared guilty. And my sentence would be eternal damnation. So how is it possible to be justified? What happens for me to hear that the judge of all the earth declares not guilty? Well, Paul's clear that it's not on account of what we do. In verse 16, he says, A person is not justified by works of the law. In other words, a person is not justified by obedience to God's law. There's, there were some in Paul's day who were teaching exactly that. That one could adequately obey God's law and thereby receive God's approval. We'll be able to keep God's law, they said, if we work hard enough, if we're sincere, if we have the right motivation and the intention of the heart. And it wasn't just the moral law that they kept. They kept the Ten Commandments and then the application of that in the civil law, the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws. Of course, the need to be circumcised. And if they did such things, they thought that along with Jesus Christ, they would receive the declaration of God, not guilty. But it wasn't just the teaching in Paul's day 
It was the teaching of many in Luther's day. And this is what Luther struggled with. He saw this in the church. He saw this among the monks. He saw this widely in Europe. Why do you think he beat himself and deprived himself of all sorts of provisions for him, for his body? It was because he thought he could win approval from God. That God would somehow look upon him that he tried so hard, was so insincere, that he gave everything for these duties, these holy duties, so that the Lord would say to him, Martin, you're a good person. I like the way you're trying so hard. And so he did. And he continued to work hard. In other words, Luther tried to earn his righteousness before God by his works. It wasn't perfect. He understood that. But who is? God knows my intentions. But this is not just in Paul's day or Luther's day. It's so much in our own day. You hear people speaking like this. I know I'm not perfect, but, but I'm good. I don't do all these hateful things. I don't do all the violence. And I'm better than this person. They might not say that, but they're thinking that. And it's very prevalent. You hear such language so often. And then this. The Lord knows my heart that I really want to obey him. And so... I'll be okay. I have no worries. But my dear friends, if any of you are thinking that way, or speaking even in that way, then no. It's precisely because God knows your heart that you will not be okay. We are not that good. In fact, we're not good at all. And therefore, however hard we try as sinners, we'll not, we'll not be able to achieve God's requirements for heaven. We will not. And Paul says that explicitly in verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. And notice how Paul insists on this. In fact, three times he tells us in verse 16. First, generally, he says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Then he speaks personally. He says, so we also who believe in Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law. Paul knew. Paul knew from experience that when it came to dealing with his sinful nature, keeping the law would not help. He tried he was the best that ever was at trying. Just read his biography, autobiography, Philippians 3. But then at the end of verse 16, he states it again in universal terms. He says, by works of the law, no one, literally no flesh, will be justified. And when the apostle uses that language, no flesh or no one, He's reminding us that we're all 
by nature children of Adam. And therefore we cannot obey the law of God. So what is generally true and personally true for the Apostle Paul is universally true. If anyone could be saved by keeping the law, it would be the natural born Jew. But Paul insists that all of us, Jew or Gentile alike, all humanity, all flesh, cannot be justified by keeping the law. Nothing that I do, nothing that Paul could do or Luther could do, nothing that we can do can make us righteous before God in terms of keeping the law. And that's our great dilemma. That was their dilemma, and that's our dilemma. And this is a question that all of us have to answer. Is it your dilemma? Are you where Paul was and Luther was? There's nothing that can make me right before God. So if a person is not justified by anything we do, how can we be justified? How can we be accepted before God declared not guilty? Well, thankfully, the apostle tells us that as well. And he is as emphatic in telling us how we can be justified as he is telling us how we could not be justified. So how can we be justified before God? Paul says, by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ. Listen again. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but, count these, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. Our standing before God, Paul says, is not found in us, in what we do, but in Christ Jesus and what he has done. That's the great emphasis of the apostle. Our standing is found in Christ Jesus. And notice how three times then in this very first, Paul highlights our only hope. Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is, as has already been stated from Romans or Corinthians, our justification. So why is Jesus so important then for our salvation? Why is Jesus Christ so important for our right standing before God? It's because... Jesus Christ has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He is our righteousness. Now many of you children, I know you learn and have learned, and the older ones, your Westminster Confession of Faith. But it states so beautiful. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons us from all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us 
and received by faith alone. So beautiful, succinct, based on the word of God. And here we have then, we learn that justification involves both a negative aspect, the pardon of our sins, and a positive aspect, being counted righteous in God's sight. As guilty sinners, we deserve the punishment of death. Scripture tells us it begins that way after the fall. The soul that sins shall die, the prophets tell us. We are guilty and therefore we are in need of someone to remove our guilt, to pardon us of our sins. We need someone to take that punishment for us, to bear the guilt, to bear the judgment we deserve. And the Old Testament Israelites and their children, they understood that so regularly as they would come with their lambs to the feasts in Jerusalem, and particularly the Passover. They understood that they needed someone to satisfy the justice of God. And bless God that the scriptures tell us that all the lambs, the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to Christ. And that, was, that is what Jesus Christ has come to do. As the Apostle Paul tells us in, in the next chapter, uh, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus bore our sins on the cross. He took the responsibility for them. And on the cross then, God, the judge, looked on his son as odious and declared him guilty. And so he paid the penalty for our sin. Isn't that amazing? As we sing, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? But secondly, while the forgiveness of sins, now listen clearly, while the forgiveness of sin is necessary, it's not sufficient. Now, that might surprise some. And you can hear this very often when you speak to people about who Jesus Christ is for them. And very often, they'll say, well, Jesus died for my sins, and so heaven's mine. That's not true. That's not true. We need more. We need more than just the forgiveness of sins. We only, not only need someone to bear the guilt of our sin, we also need a perfect righteousness from God. A righteousness that God requires. A righteousness that God demands, which is perfect, perpetual obedience. So where do I find that perfect righteousness? Well, again, the lamb without blemish, Christ Jesus, our Savior. And this is what we need to instruct our children. 
This is the full gospel. Christ Jesus came to forgive us of our sins, but also to impute to us his righteousness, his obedience. That is only and only the way that heaven will be ours in Christ. Christ Jesus not only paid the penalty for our breaking the law of God, but he also kept the law perfectly. It was his delight. He didn't deviate from the law one moment. You know how sometimes when we keep our law, not sometimes, always, there's always a tinge of sin. Sometimes more, sometimes less. But the desire of our heart, even though it's pure, we do not perfectly, not for one moment, could it be said that we have loved the Lord our God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that's not true of our Lord Jesus Christ. He loved the Lord. It was his delight to keep the law of God. He loved his Father so much that this was his life to please his Father in every way. Isn't that beautiful? So when you read the Psalms, when you read the life of our Lord Jesus, when we see our Lord, when Luke speaks of him, that he grew in stature and in favor with God and man. Such a beautiful testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every minute of every day, for 365 days of the year, for 33 years, our Savior loved his Father entirely, gave his life for him. He did the will of the Heavenly Father with joy and love and perfect obedience. And this is the thrust then of what Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 19, where Paul teaches that by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And Paul here is speaking about the Adams, and he's telling us that the last Adam accomplished what the first Adam failed to accomplish. And it's through this one man, Jesus Christ our Lord, that perfect righteousness is given to sinners. So Jesus takes my sin... And, this, and suffers the punishment for them. And he gives me his perfect righteousness. The righteousness I need. The righteousness that God requires. Isn't that incredible? It ought to astound us. This, this is unbelievable, really, that... that that God would do such a thing and then accomplish it through his dear son, the son of his love, the son of his bosom. But how can all that Christ, that Christ has done for sinners, how can that, can, how can that be yours and how can that be mine? That's the question. So we can look at this doctrine rather objectively. But we don't want to stay there. We want to become subjective. We want to enjoy these truths, to live out of these truths every day, all our days. How is that possible? And so this is not just for the first-time believer. This is for all of us. Because faith is not a one-time deal. No, faith, Paul says, is the answer. 
And faith always needs to be strengthened because it often fails. So what is it about faith in Jesus Christ that will allow guilty sinners to hear those marvelous words from God or judge? Not guilty. Well, Paul tells us here that it's faith in Jesus Christ. And faith in Jesus Christ, then, is to acknowledge that I have no righteousness in myself. That no matter how I try, there's no righteousness. In other words, we confess that we are sinners. And that in and of myself, I cannot be right with God. In fact, I'm far from it. If God would deal with me in terms of my sin, he would only declare me guilty, and rightly so. That's what I deserve. But by faith in Jesus Christ, then, I receive the righteousness and the satisfaction that he provides for me in his Son. Because faith, faith, it's a beautiful thing. It unites me to Jesus. It unites me to my Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Faith, we might say, is the empty hand that receives Jesus Christ. It embraces him and embracing him, we have all of him. Not just parts of him, but all of him. Faith is the instrument, we might say, that receives the free gift of salvation because it takes hold of Christ. Children, let me make it very easy for you as an illustration. When you have a potato on your plate and it's all cut up, how are you going to, you see that potato, you can't wait to eat it because it's covered with salt and pepper and butter and cheese and cream cheese. How are you going to get that potato in your mouth? You look at it, it's beautiful, you know it's going to nourish you, satisfy your longings. How are you going to get it in your mouth? Most of us would use a fork. I realize some don't, but that is the proper way. And that fork then is the instrument where I take that potato and put it in my mouth. And then I enjoy it. And that's what faith is. Faith is just an instrument. It doesn't save. Christ Jesus saves. But he has so beautifully provided the instrument, and that is faith in him. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive salvation. Because faith believes in Jesus Christ. Faith trusts in Christ. It rests in all that Christ is and has done. And so when we receive Jesus Christ by faith then, when we place our trust in our Savior Jesus Christ, God looks upon us, clothed now in the perfect righteousness of his Son, the one who loved the Father, the one who delighted to do the will of the Father. He looks upon us clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ with all my sins covered. And he justifies me. That is, he pardons me for all my sins. All my sins, past, present, future. 
my death in Adam. And he accepts me as righteous in his sight. He declares me not guilty. He justifies sinners. That's who God is for us in Christ Jesus. And this is what the apostle calls the great exchange. Christ, Christ assumes what is ours by nature so that all that he has accomplished might become ours by faith. So that I may stand before a holy God not only as if I have never sinned, but also as one who now has fully satisfied all God's commands. Isn't that spectacular? So not just negatively, but positively, God looks upon me in Christ. And that's why we can say, as, as we are found in Christ and hidden in Christ, God loves our obedience. We are now justified fully. Now in the present, as we ever will be, it doesn't wane like our faith so often. No, this is God's declaration in Christ Jesus, not guilty. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4.25, Jesus Christ was delivered, he says, up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And again, Paul doesn't get tired of reminding us of these truths. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone placed Martin Luther on top of the world. Actually, it placed him in another world. He tells us that when he discovered this great biblical truth, and as the Spirit then illuminated his heart and mind, he says this, All at once I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. And that's true. As by the power of the Spirit, as He brings us to this knowledge of justification, as we put our faith in Christ Jesus, we are moved from this world to a new world, the new era we have entered into. And we bless God for it. This is the great gospel that was rediscovered at the Reformation, by the grace of God, some 500 years ago. It's not a gospel of do, but a gospel of done. Not us, but Christ. Our salvation is in him and in him alone. And this is the gospel that we need to remind ourselves of regularly. And we need to remind our children of regularly. Why is it? Why is it that, that there was such a reformation? 
It's because it was forgotten, not preached, not taught to our next generations. But this, this is the glorious gospel of Christ Jesus. Not of what you must contribute, but what Christ has done for sinners. It removes the burden off our backs. You've got to feel for old pilgrim progress, don't you, Christian? Now, I wonder if you've made this discovery for yourself. Have you placed your faith in Christ Jesus? It's quite easy to know. Because if you have, you'll know the joy, the peace with God. Your conscience will be at peace. You will have sweet fellowship with God. And you'll know a God who's no longer angry with you. A God who is no longer a judge, but a God who is your loving Father. A Father who now embraces you in Christ Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you'll know the thrill of this. And I hope it still thrills your soul. There is nothing greater in all the world than this great exchange. There's nothing like it. And though all hell... And all the world is bent on destroying the church, you and me. Paul says nothing, nothing in all the world or in all the universe can separate us from our God. If we have found faith in Christ Jesus. If you're not a Christian this morning, then acknowledge there's no good thing in you. And that shouldn't be hard to do, should it? No, there is no good thing in us by nature. And if you put your trust in yourself, you'll perish. You'll perish. But there is all good in Christ Jesus. And by faith in him, you will not perish, but have life eternal. That's the gospel that was rediscovered in the Reformation. And may God so impress it upon our hearts and minds that we might live out of it and teach the succeeding generations the glorious gospel of God for us in Christ. Amen. Father, we're so grateful that you are the God who in Christ Jesus made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, we bless you, we praise you, we magnify your great name. Lord, who could ever do this? Who could ever devise such a salvation? But you are God. And that's just like you, oh God. That you loved, Father, the world so much that you sent your Son into the world so that all who had put their faith in him would not perish, but have life eternal. For you did not send your Son into the world, John reminds us, to condemn the world, but that sinners would be saved as they looked to Christ. And so we ask this morning, O oh, powerful Spirit, reviving, regenerating Spirit, that you would look graciously upon those who have not yet put their faith in you. And we ask, Lord, that you would show them their own unrighteousness.
and then point them to Jesus. Set their eyes upon the one, the righteous one, the one who is our Savior. Oh God, encourage each of us as we live this life of faith. May these great, glorious truths be set before us and re help us to remind ourselves of it and our families, our congregations, so that all the glory and the praise would be to you, Father, Son, 